Good morning, everybody. It is Thursday, January 25th, and you are tuning in to another episode um, of the Next Cycle podcast slash videocast, depending on how you're enjoying this. As always, my name is William Wilkinson. I'm your host. I'm the author of the book, The Next Cycle, The Foundational Years. Um, the website is thenextcycle.org. From there, you can find links to the various platforms where the webcast or the uh, podcast can be found if you're watching this on video um, and you would prefer a podcast, you can find those links. If you're listening to this as a podcast and you're curious as to what I look like and you want to find uh, links to the video, you can find those on the website as well. And of course, you can find purchase links for the book, um, The Next Cycle, The Foundational Year. So I have a lot I want to cover today. Um, Those of you that uh, maybe have been with me since the beginning know that in the beginning, I was very, <laughs> rather disorganized, and, um, you know, our cast just uh, uh, didn't flow uh, properly since then. I have started um, doing a lot more research and, and organizing uh, my thoughts so that things tend to flow a little more smoothly. Um, unfortunately, uh, the more research you do, the more you realize that... Um, or the more research I do, the more I realize how much needs to be included in one of these uh, um, episodes. So we are currently in, uh, I'm calling it season two. It's an us versus them um, series. Uh, uh, In the previous episode, we talked a lot about how humans are wired for an us versus them mentality. Um, I recommend listening to that for a... um, uh, uh, an introduction to this today, though. So over the next several episodes, we're going to talk about different ways that we break ourselves up into us versus them. Today, we're going to talk about national borders. Um, it's a hot button topic. I have debated it extensively um, for uh, on a couple of occasions with a couple of different people. Um, it should be known, uh, and one thing that it took me until this last debate to realize, I debate from the next cycle point of view and what works in the next cycle of humanity on Earth and what doesn't. And borders simply do not. Um, borders are rather archaic. They are used primarily to uh, control people. You know, um, yeah, they don't make you safe. They really don't. In fact, I would say just the opposite. How many wars are fought on, um, you know, for the sake of expanding these borders or maintaining these borders? Um, you know, they they do help to make people money and they help to keep people um, or give people power. And they also help to ensure that poor nations remain poor while wealthy nations remain wealthy. Um, so borders really do... Um, excuse me, borders really do, uh, uh, yeah, they, they help to define wealth and power and, and maintain the balance of wealth and power, or what we call the balance of wealth and power. Uh, they make sure that wealthy people stay wealthy, wealthy nations stay wealthy. Um, again, they don't keep you safe. They really don't. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, and as I said, they absolutely do not exist in the next cycle. There's no room, um, really, even in today's world, uh, for us to be segregated by nationality. Um, we're far too connected for that. But 
we are, I understand the cycle that we live in. I'm not naive. I'm not stupid. Um, I'm just saying it's wrong, you know? Uh, so yeah. So let's, um, start our discussion. Let's, uh, you know, I love history. Let's talk a little bit about the history of national borders. More than likely, um, prehistoric times when humans were hunters and gatherers, uh, I'm certain that um, different groups uh, maybe claimed different lands as they roamed, saying, well, this is a portion that we're going to hunt and gather in, while another group, uh, you know, would say, oh, well, this is a portion that we're going to hunt and gather in. Um, and, and so, you know, the idea of a group of people occupying a piece of land, um, probably not unusual, probably makes sense. You don't want, you know, 2,000 people trying to hunt the same land that can only sustain 150 people, right? So it makes sense. It makes sense for everybody. As humans began to settle into agrarian societies, um, again, uh, Borders make sense, you know, you want to, uh, um, you want to make sure you have enough land to sustain the size of your population. Now, this is where, um, kind of, uh, let's call it the, uh, um, foundations of, um, imperialism, maybe, um, start coming into play because the more land you have, the more people you can sustain. So what do you do? You take that land. Um, and you hold that land. So, uh, your, the size of your civilization is based on how much land you can take and how much land you can sustain, uh, or how much land you can keep. Um, and so, yeah, so that gives us kind of the foundation of the idea of borders. The idea of borders are not new, it's not unusual, and it made perfectly good sense um, in ancient times. Uh, You know, Um, maybe not perfectly good sense, but it made sense in ancient times. Certainly did not make enough sense for the number of deaths that have occurred. But moving forward, uh, the way we know borders now... um, starts, uh, God, you're not going to believe this, starts with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I know that seems to come up every episode, whether I want it to or not. Uh, So um, most people will say that uh, um, our current concept of borders uh, began with the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, Probably mispronounce that. I'll probably mispronounce a lot of things, you know. Um, to understand the Treaty of Westphalia, you really have to understand a lot, um, well, a little bit about the history of the area. So, going back to the Roman Empire, um, in, uh, uh, what was it, uh, 330, uh, the Emperor Constantine, um, we all know that he, uh, or during the 330s, that he made, um, uh, Christianity legal uh, at some point turned into the state religion so that Rome became a Christian uh, empire. He also moved his capital from Rome to a city we now call Istanbul. It was Constantinople. So he uh, moved the capital to a city that um, you know would have his name. That left the, um, the Christian church in Rome as the predominant um, authority, 
you know, uh, and, and that's really kind of where this begins. Um, it was in the year, uh, somewhere around the year of 395, when Rome officially split into East, East and West. The uh, Eastern Roman Empire would eventually become known as the Byzantine Empire. Um, uh, the split was uh, largely, I think it was the Emperor Theodosius died and uh, split the, or his two sons um, uh, kind of seceded him and one took the Western Roman Empire, one the Eastern. So during this time, uh, you know, of the uh, Western Empire, there's, a, you know, a little less than 100 years of the Western Empire existing apart from the entire empire. Uh, during this time, a lot of outside groups, a lot of Germanic tribes uh, started moving into the empire to uh, avoid the Huns, the attacks by the Huns. So um, a lot of outside influence um, and they started setting up uh, their kingdoms, their city-states or what, or what have you. And Rome, uh, at that time, the Western Roman Empire was just not able uh, from a military, political, or financial standpoint uh, to prevent this from happening. In 476, um, the last Western Roman Empire was deposed by um, a Germanic king. I want to say the name is Odessa or something along those lines. You can look it up. You'll find it. Um, and that is where scholars usually say that the Roman Empire fell because this uh, Odessa was German king and he deposed the last Roman Empire, uh, bringing the Western Roman Empire largely under control of Germanic peoples. So, uh, but I've also read where the average Roman wouldn't have recognized that their empire fell um, because they didn't identify themselves by the emperor. They identified themselves uh, uh Socially, I guess you could say, you know, um, they had an identity uh, that made them Romans that wasn't necessarily contingent on who um, was in charge in Rome. And largely by this point, by 476, uh, the Catholic Church um, had really spread, you know, and gained a fair amount of power. And that's only going to get bigger in the coming um, decades, so, or the coming centuries. 590 AD, um, Pope Gregory the uh, First. He starts. Um, he uh, starts his papacy, um, his role as pope, and he starts his. Uh, uh, um, what do we want to call it? This uh, process of of assimilating people into the Catholic Church of convert converting people, uh, converting people that were non-Catholics into Catholics. Um, it, it, and he did it oftentimes forcibly. During this time, uh, the Catholic Church gained a lot of political and military power. So uh, the, in large part, the Western Roman Empire has now more or less um, been replaced by the Catholic religion. Uh, why? Because whereas politically it was very difficult to hold all these different kingdoms and city-states together, from a religious standpoint, it was a whole lot easier, wasn't it? Because everybody kind of agrees. All right, so we want to keep moving on. Um, as these kingdoms kept coming in, there there were challenges, of course. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. 
sorry, no, we're not at the challenge point yet. Um, the big challenge, uh, the big threat, what ultimately led to the Treaty of Westphalia, uh, was the Protestant Reformation. And that was, everybody knows, when uh, Martin Luther um, brought up 95 topics uh, about the Catholic Church that he felt were um, uh, indecent or improper uh, or what have you. Um, and, and so Protestantism um, kind of came into being as a counter to the uh, Catholic Church, um, which you can imagine you can imagine, uh, was quite the challenge. As of um, 800, uh, the Western Roman Empire was now known as the Holy Roman Empire. It was based on religion. The The Western Empire existed because of the Catholic Church. Um, and the Catholic Church really ruled the Holy Roman Empire. Um, they may have indirectly um, used puppet emperors, um, it was in 800 when it became known as the Holy Roman Empire to scholars was when uh, the Pope um, crowned the, uh, uh, the emperor. Anyways, and if a Pope can make you emperor, he can also take it away from you. What one person gives, they can also take away, and we know that. Um, so the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, you know, it spread. The idea of um, uh, this Protestant view of religion spread. Um, and obviously, it resulted in many conflicts between, um, you know, the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church, like I say, you know, for several hundred years has been in a process of converting everybody to Catholicism. So uh, there was, and I, I didn't take note of the year, Again, you can look it up, um, but there was an Osberg settlement. Um, what the Osberg settlement did was it allowed um, Protestant uh, uh, kingdoms to exist. Um, it allowed them to exist uh, despite, um, you know, the, the Catholic opposition to the fact. So, the Peace of Westphalia, the Westphalia Treaty... The Westphalia Treaty, sorry, another disadvantage to having a, um, or one disadvantage to having a uh, um, notebook or whatever is, is that I got to turn pages every now and then. Anyways, as Protestantism, which is a really weird word for me to say for some reason, um, as belief in the Protestant religion uh, version of Christianity grew, um, so did the, the size of these kingdoms and Protestants started encroaching on areas that, uh, were supposed to be Catholic. This ultimately led to, uh, this and a couple of other factors, of course, led to what's known as a 30 years war. Um, it is believed to, have, it is stated to have begun in 1618, um, and it ran until 1648. It was largely a civil war within the Holy Roman Empire of these Protestant kingdoms versus uh, the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church, um, and yeah, like I said, there were there were other things. There there was a nice little side battle between uh, Spain and uh, the Dutch. You know, the Dutch uh, ultimately wound up getting um, freedom from Spain, and of course, France got involved and. Ultimately, though, it began, um, 
you know, as a, a religious battle, a total of about four and a, anywhere from four and a half to eight million people died during the 30, millions, uh, 30 years war. Um, so, yeah, religion keeps us safe, doesn't it? Anyways, um, the Peace Treaty of Westphalia, uh, there were actually three separate treaties. The one that really applies to our discussion um, allowed the individual states, in other words, the, the individual kingdoms, allowed them to control things uh, like religion and taxing the public within a s certain geographical area. Whereas before you could control as much as you could hold, you know, from a military standpoint, now you could control within a specific geographic area. And that largely gives us a foundation of um, today's borders, where our borders allow um, governments to control uh, the people who live within them. So religion and taxation, stuff like that, uh, um, probably the biggest use of borders um, in, in, those, in those days, in those early years. Big change came, though, with the Industrial Revolution. Um, the Industrial Revolution, the first Industrial Revolution, uh, the Industrial Revolution is said to have come in waves, uh, beginning in Britain, and then the second was in America, Britain, and Europe, uh, the European continent, and then there was a third in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century um, that has been identified. So the first um, uh, Industrial Revolution, the first wave of the Industrial Revolution was considered to have happened in Britain. Um, somewhere around 1760. Now, borders had a different purpose, didn't they? Borders had the purpose now of controlling resources that were necessary to drive industry. In 1815, um, uh, Great Britain, uh, the British Empire, uh, had a few small African holdings. Well, with the Industrial Revolution... Um, you know, as it kind of got into gear, um, there, there was a rush on African territory with the, uh, the second wave of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, European countries, there was a wave um, to essentially take Africa so that they could have control of the resources. Resources, of course, being both natural resources and slave labor. Um, let's not forget that humans were considered a resource uh, during this time. So from 1815, uh, you know, small holdings for the British Empire um, to very large swaths of um, uh, uh, British-controlled African land. At one point, it was declared that Britain controlled um, a swath that went from Cape Hope in South Africa all the way um, into Egypt, you know, so... Uh, so, so then borders, you know, borders now are about controlling resources um, and, and colonizing because, you know, the more resources you get, um, you know, the stronger your industrial push is. So now we have borders, very similar to today, where you control people, the people within your borders, and you control the resources within your borders. And the country with the most toys wins so the more resources you can keep for yourself, um, you know, the better, the stronger you are. And that's kind of our mentality. 
um, for modern borders. So that's where modern borders come from. And we're going to get back to borders in just a couple of moments. Um, but obviously the hot topic, hot topic, uh, part of this discussion is immigration. Specifically, I'm going to deal with immigration into the United States. Why? Because that's where I live and that's where most of you people are probably listening from. So, um, Early, pre-World War II, um, immigration was largely driven by uh, the need for labor. So the government of the United States, uh, you know, we went through different processes of how to become a citizen or how to become a naturalized citizen um, of, the, um, of the country through uh, a need for labor. You know, so we, we need labor, so we're going to let, you know, these people in. You live and work for this long um, in the United States, you pledge your allegiance to the government of the United States, and you can become a naturalized citizen of the United States. This was uh, very, very big um, shortly after the, uh, 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 the revolution when we had to build a population for our country, you know, and we needed to produce things to pay off the debts that the revolution left the United States with. So pre-World War II, um, there are ebbs and flows to immigration into the United States. Um, a couple of things that are interesting during this time. Um, see, originally, Congress didn't have any control over immigration. Neither did the president. Um, you know, immigration was a state issue. So the states decided how many people they wanted to have immigrate into their state. Um, and they determined the qualifications. In time, of course, uh, Congress takes, uh, you know, winds up with control over this. Um, at one point, the president has the power to deport um, by just saying so, you know. Um, and Congress starts setting up um, standards, uh, you know, who can immigrate into the United States um, and who cannot. The first restrictions were placed on the Eastern Hemisphere, um, anything in the Eastern Hemisphere from Europe to Asia. Um, sorry. Uh, anybody in the Western Hemisphere could immigrate kind of freely. Mexico, Canada, um, so very popular for Mexicans or Canadians to immigrate into the United States. The only restrictions, like I say, were based on uh, in the Eastern Hemisphere. <laughs> then along, along comes the racism. Um, and I did not make note of the guy who made the statement, um, but he said that it was appalling that these peons from Mexico could immigrate freely into the United States while we, while we restricted um, the uh, uh, people that looked like us, while we restricted um, people from, you know, European nations, Northern European nations in particular. Um, and so eventually it got to a point um, where... Uh, it was determined that Mexicans couldn't immigrate into the United States because they could never become naturalized citizens because they were a mixed breed. Um, as if half of the U.S. wasn't already a mixed breed. But anyways, um, part of the naturalization process required you to declare um, kind of a lineage, you know, um, uh, you know, what's your family's you know, birthright or whatever, you know, Caucasian, African, whatever. Um, 
So yeah, so Mexicans were no longer, for a period, were no longer allowed to legally immigrate into the United States um, for racial reasons, strictly for racial reasons because they were mixed breed peons. Um, kind of bugs you a little bit, doesn't it? Sad thing is, I know people, it doesn't bug. Anyways. Also during this time, um, there's kind of a lottery system set up. Uh, the U.S. starts um, allowing certain numbers of immigrants from certain areas. Uh, Northern, Northwestern Europe always had the majority, probably still does, uh, as far as quotas. Um, and then Eastern, Southern Europe would be next, Asia, um, and yeah, everybody else. But it was something like 70% at one point of the allowed immigrants had to come from North. Uh, Western European nations, um, the British Isles largely. Uh, anyways, World War II, um, and and obviously there there are different things. Like I say, that an interesting thing that I read and I didn't make note of, and I really should have. Um, the idea that immigrants take away jobs. So uh, leading up to the Great Depression. Um, there were several uh, people from Mexico that came over here to work. Um, at one point, uh, the leader of the, um, I don't know if it, it wasn't Custom and Border Patrol yet. Um, it was the Internal Naturalization Service or something like that. Um, the head guy, you know, uh, he decided that he could boost employment in the United States by getting rid of all these illegal Mexicans. So um, so he had over a million Mexicans deported, which um, ironically had the exact opposite effect um, of what he had hoped um, because there were industries that existed to support this million people. Um, and the less people, less need for those industries, less jobs. Um, ultimately removing the illegal immigrants cost the United States jobs during uh, the Great Depression. Kind of interesting. Let's fast forward to World War II, shall we? World War II, most um, able-bodied uh, men um, were off fighting in the war, right? So uh, the workforce in the United States was filled by a couple of places. One, uh, women started working um, regularly outside of the home, uh, to support, you know, uh, the war effort while their men were off fighting, um, which ultimately led to the two-income family. Um, and migrant Mexican workers were allowed, uh, visas to come and work in agricultural, uh, positions. Um, certain restrictions were, were placed, um, mainly on the farms, uh, on how they could treat these workers. So, um, obviously, World War II ends, of course. So, um, before the end of war, uh, during this uh, uh, program where, where the Mexicans were allowed these work visas, uh, this was called a, um, again, probably going to uh, mispronounce, Braceros program, um, which allowed these work visas. 
It allowed people to immigrate uh, legally from Mexico to come here to work on a work visa um, and make money. It did not allow them necessarily to become citizens, but it allowed them to come and work. Uh, in 1947, they temporarily ended the program, which immediately made well over a million people in the country illegally. They came here illegally. Um, the program went away and now they were here illegally, uh, did not work out well and was uh, quickly reinstated. Um, in the 1950s, the uh, Braceros program um, expanded. Uh, so more work visas were allowed. Uh, and, and then... Mm, the end of the program, uh, the end of the Braceros program finally came uh, in 1964. You know why? Because labor unions and industri industry in uh, the United States um, said, well, we can't have this cheap, you know, unregulated labor, you, you know, that, that undermines the labor unions. So, the, um, so for the benefit of labor unions, and industry, um, they made, um, you know, coming here to work for Mexico illegal. You know, the government did. Um, yeah, so, uh, you, you know, immigration for Mexico became illegal because some people weren't making enough money. Interesting thing, um, during the, in 1955, one of the uh, immigration or one of the CBP, because at this point, the Custom Border Patrol existed. Um, one of the CBP officials said, if the Braceros program was ever ended, um, you would find an influx of illegal immigrants um, into the United States because these people wanted to come here to work, you know, and farmers wanted to bring them to work. So, okay, we can't do it legally, we'll do it illegally. And that's what happened after 1964. This is not exactly what's happening on the southern border now. And I'll get to that in a couple, um, probably just, actually, no, I could probably get to that right now. Um, oh, I do want to say that in 1955, um, during the kind of the peak of the Braceros program, um, deportations of illegal immigrants tanked. Like it almost didn't exist um, because people were able to come here legally. And I really do believe if you give, give people a path to come here legally, um, that they would follow that path. When you eliminate that path, uh, then they just, you know, they, they come illegally because th there's something about America that these people want. And what a lot of it is, is safety and security. Um, read an article just recently, a news article uh, about, you know, immigrants that crossed the border illegally and turned themselves immediately into Customs and Border Patrol um, because they want to be here legally. You know, they're asylum seekers. Uh, they're, they're fleeing poverty. They're, they're fleeing um, violence in, in their home countries. And, and a lot of my conservative friends say, well, that violence and, and, and that's all their problem. You know, they need to deal with that in their country, not in our country, you know, not run away from it. Uh, <laughs> one guy recently said, oh, well, if, you know, these Mexicans have such great work ethics, why can't they work in Mexico to make their country better instead of coming here and making our country worse? Um, 
Can't think of a much more bigoted fucking argument, but pardon, sorry. Can't think of a much more bigoted argument than that. Mm. But yeah. Why? Because the opportunities don't exist in other countries. If they did, they would stay. If people could be safe and work productively to support their families um, outside of poverty, they would likely stay in their countries. Who would want to leave their national heritage to go somewhere else, you know, if um, the safety and opportunity existed in their home country? Right? That's why Canadians don't come illegally. That's why a lot of Europeans don't come illegally. Um, because the opportunities and the protections that could be found in the United States are found in these other countries, um, the, the more advanced countries. And that's why um, a wave of illegal immigrants is coming uh, primarily from the southern border and places where these protections don't exist. Um, uh, Want a little more on that? I have a video posted on my Facebook page. Um, it's separate from the blog post and, and the uh, videos just because the language is... Uh, I was quite angry. The language is quite colorful. Uh, but it talks about, like, the child sex trade. Um, you know, and selling children into uh, sexual slavery. Which, ironically, <laughs> America is the greatest consumer of child sex slaves. Just saying. Um, and it's one of the reasons people want to escape their countries is because they know their children can be kidnapped and sold into slavery as sex slaves. You know, uh, most of the ills of this world, I believe, are driven by um, greed and poverty. If you eliminate, ironically, one is preventable. Pro poverty can be prevented, but greed won't allow its prevention. Uh, one argument for, uh, quote unquote, closing the southern border um, is that we can't afford to take care of other people. We, in the richest nation the world has ever known, we cannot afford to take care of people. That's one argument. The other argument is that <laughs> uh, everybody coming over the border is a criminal. They're, they're coming to rape our women and bring drugs and guns. And uh, so we need to close that border to keep our people safe. No, the majority of the people crossing the border illegally are asylum seekers. You know, uh, is there criminal activity? Of course, there's criminal activity. Um, can you stop it with laws and policies? Of course not. And even Republicans will acknowledge that. You know, because anytime Democrats start talking about common sense gun legislation, Republicans say, oh, well, you know, criminals will get around the legislation and still uh, get guns and, and commit their crimes. Well, guess what? Same thing on the border. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you put in place to try to deter criminal activity. Criminals are going to commit criminal activity. They're just going to find a way around or over or under. Let's talk border walls, shall we? Um, and, you know, border walls, I'm going to uh, pretty much wrap up after this. Looks like we'll be wrapping up kind of early. Uh, nice change of pace for me. Normally I get off on long rants and these go forever. Anyways, walls. Let's talk about those physical border barriers, walls. Um, historically, walls are ineffective. 
they have proven ineffective. Uh, they might have been effective when they were first built, but um, as time and technology and whatnot advances, uh, they prove ineffective. Uh, let's go way back. Um, the Great Wall of China. Yet when it was first built, it was uh, fairly effective at repelling um, invaders from the uh, Huns to the north. Um, but you know, in 1550, the Huns just bypassed the wall and sacked Beijing. So um, again, the Great Wall, which is probably what um, our, uh, is, was he the 45th president? It's probably what our 45th president wanted to emulate. He wanted to put his name on a wall like the Great Wall, um, was proven ineffective. You know, it was ineffective 500 years ago, um, almost. So, yeah. So there's that wall. Another wall that are, another set of walls that were very effective, um, were the walls of Constantinople. Constantinople. Istanbul was Constantinople. Anyways, uh, the walls of Constantinople. Um, uh, they were called the walls of Constantine, of course. You know, uh, the Emperor Constantine. Uh, they had an outer wall of 27 feet height, and the inner wall was 40 feet high and 15 feet wide, and the entire wall around the city was constantly manned um, by archers and, and soldiers uh, to rain down arrows and what was known as Greek fire, um, an early form of napalm, um, to anybody who might try to ev invade. And those walls were very effective for a long time until the Ottoman Empire came along with cannons <laughs> and blew holes in the wall. Um, walls were, again, ineffective, you know, um, It was just getting ineffective. Uh, uh, society outgrew the effectiveness of the wall. Still, in what was it, 1961 or 1968, uh, obviously post-World War II, Soviet Union built a wall in Berlin. Um, and that wall wasn't about keeping uh, Westerners out. It was more about keeping Easterners in. So, uh, and for a, a purpose of efficiency, you know, give it credit where credit's due. Um, it existed for, um, what was just shy of 25 years, I think. It was 1989 that it came down. Um, and maybe it was 92, maybe it was. Anyways, um, about 100 people, a little over 100 people died trying to get around um, the fortification. Uh, however, thousands, literally thousands survived um, either scaling the wall, tunneling under the wall, or using um, light aircraft or homemade uh, hot air balloons to float over the wall. Here's the thing about a wall on our southern border. <laughs> it's very easy for people to fly over the wall. Um, and And... Mexicans, criminal uh, cartels and whatnot in Mexico have long ago proven that it's that they have the ability to tunnel under a wall um, as they've tunneled under uh, other fortifications. Um, and quite frankly, I just recently went to Google Earth and I uh, went to Street View at various points on our southern border and really a lot of our southern border is quote-unquote protected by chain-link fence with a little bit of barbed wire on top. Uh, those border 
areas are in the most inhospitable uh, parts, um, you know, so where there's desert and whatnot, where people die trying to get to the fence. Um, and think, if people are willing to die to try to get here illegally, there's something wrong in their country. Currently, the... Um, Currently, uh, the the uh, current program on borders, um, modern border uh, control is really expanded well beyond our um, invisible lines. Uh, currently, in the United States, uh, Customs and Border Patrol um, is trying to work in Guatemala to stop the people from leaving in the first place, to work on policies and institute changes that will keep people from leaving the country in the first place. That makes sense. Great Britain's a little more cold-hearted. They pretty much um, use, I think it's Libya, um, as a place to send all the immigrants they don't want, the poor people, the refugees, you know. Um, So what does a wall on our southern border do you know what it does it gets votes it it plays into the emotions of the simple-minded the the simple-minded people that still think a wall will stop criminal activity and i it sounds cruel to call it simple-mindedness but what other mind thinks that you know um that a wall is going to stop criminal activity or, or that a wall is going to do anything, you know. Um, they say, well, it might slow it down. Well, gun legislation might slow down, you know, criminals getting guns. Won't completely eliminate it, but it might slow it down. You know, it will eliminate illegal immigration, eliminating poverty in those countries. And we have the power to do that in the United States. We have the power as a people um, to con- to, to eliminate poverty in the world, uh, to make people comfortable living where they are, to, to increase um, quality of life really globally. Um, and we choose not to do that. Why? Because it's mine. This money's mine. These resources are mine. And you're not worth them. That's the mentality of the world today. And that's what ends um, in the next cycle. Because in the next cycle, we realize, um, most of you know, I believe that uh, the change of cycles is going to be ugly and a lot of people are going to die. But in the next cycle, I think we finally realize that we are one person. Um, We are one people. We are one global society. Um, Globalization right now is uh, presented by Republicans as a bad thing. Um, I think it's a very good thing, you know. Imagine if the resource of of the natural resources of places like Africa could combine with the ingenuity of Japan and combine with the industrial might of China or the United States, what could that produce for the benefit of the United States, right? Or the benefit of the world, I'm sorry, the United States. Uh, The benefit of the world. You know, this, uh, we're programmed early on, and and I want to wrap this up, um, to think that uh, our different nationalities were a punishment from God. Uh, you might recall the Tower of Babel story in the Old Testament. If you don't uh, recall it, Google it because I don't memorize books, chapters, and verses. But the Tower of Babel, um, it was shortly after the flood. So, yeah, it's definitely in Genesis. Um, all man was located in one place and they built this giant tower up to heaven. And God said, oh, well, they do this when they're all together together. Um, 
they build this tower to glorify themselves instead of me, so I'm going to separate them uh, by nationality and language. And uh, according to, so we're seeing that our varying languages, our various languages, and our different nationalities were a punishment from God. So we see we're we're kind of programmed, whether consciously or subconsciously, to believe that um, working together is a punishable offense in the eyes of God. That's a big part of what's wrong with religion. Anyways. So, get into the next cycle. You you know, yeah, right now, this is a world we live in, and it sucks. But it's not going to last. It can't last. The way the world is now will lead us to our destruction. But in our destruction, from the ashes of that destruction, we can rise back up as one people. As always, folks, the divide in me, I got to have my fingers floating over the stop button so I can stop them both at the same time. That's what I'm looking at. Um, As always, my friends, the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. Namaste.